0: Scripps Research makes a big step toward an HIV vaccine.
1: Probably the most difficult vaccine problem ever attempted.
0: I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego launches Black Legacy Now to address racial disparities in healthcare.
2: It's really sort of a clarion call to action that these inequities are fundamentally unjust.
0: The challenge of navigating through special ed policies for students in San Diego. And for the 28 Days of Black History Month, 28 Days of Black Films. That's ahead on Midday Edition. There's been a major breakthrough in the fight against HIV, which also may change the way vaccines are used to fight other diseases. Scripps Research has announced success in the first clinical trial of a new approach against the disease, one that involves vaccines that boost the body's ability to produce antibodies. Researchers have been working for 40 years to find a key that would unlock the riddle of HIV prevention. This clinical trial's results are the first step toward realizing that goal. Joining me is William Sheef, a professor and immunologist at Scripps Research and executive director of vaccine design at IAVI's Neutralizing Antibody Center. And professor, congratulations.
1: Thank you very much.
0: The world has been so focused on COVID. It's important to remember that more than 36 million people around the world are living with HIV and nearly two million new infections each year. So give us a sense of how important it would be to have a vaccine prevention for HIV.
1: You know, it's something like between four and five thousand people every single day get newly infected with HIV. And uh, here in the United States and in the developed world, people have access. You know, through their insurance, basically, to drugs can, that can save you from HIV, that you can, you know, maintain a relatively normal life even if you get infected. But in many places around the world, access to those drugs is not so easy. They're expensive. They're hard to get. There's social and economic barriers to access. And if you don't have access to those drugs and you get infected, there is no there's no known uh, cure. There's no way to get rid of the virus. And so it's still basic. It is really a death sentence. Uh, for many people still. And a vaccine would be the way uh, if we could make a vaccine, it would could prevent infection and prevent uh, millions of people every year from uh, having to fight this battle for the rest of their lives.
0: Now, one of the reasons that an HIV vaccine has been so elusive is the complexity of the virus itself and its ability to mutate. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so people are I think everyone is getting pretty used to hearing about the spike protein of coronavirus and how all the different vaccines are trying to elicit antibodies that bind to the spike protein and then block it from infecting our cells. And HIV has a similar spike protein. well, and people are, are used to hearing about the variants now of coronavirus, and in some cases, variants make uh, the vaccine protection you know more difficult to achieve. And HIV is just that problem on steroids. It's really not one virus. It's like 50 million different viruses, all of which have a different spike protein or variants of the spike protein. So if you make a vaccine using one spike protein of HIV, you might protect against that particular variant, but not against the other you know, 50 million that are circulating around the world. So the real challenge is to induce what we call broadly neutralizing antibodies that have the ability to neutralize diverse strains of HIV, and that is an incredibly difficult problem.
0: Yeah, this vaccine trial showed success in stimulating production of rare immune cells that could eventually produce a rare type of antibody. What do you mean by rare immune cells?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So we we believe and we know that we need to induce what we call broadly neutralizing antibodies. Those are antibodies that bind to patches on the HIV spike that don't change very much. Um, It's just very difficult to elicit those kinds of antibodies. Those antibodies that can broadly neutralize HIV have special properties typically. And when you're you're designing a vaccine, when the vaccine is first exposed to a person, it first engages with what what are called naive B cells. And it turns on a set of naive B cells and those B cells will mature and gradually learn how to neutralize the virus. And so in our vaccine clinical trial, we had a strategy to target very specific set of naive B cells that have genetic and structural properties that give them the potential to develop into the kind of antibodies that we know we need to elicit in the long run. And rare, they're rare because their frequency is about one in a million of naive human B cells. So the vaccine had to find sort of like a needle in a haystack and activate the right B cells. And it seems to have done that.
0: And when you stimulate the right B cells, then you can develop these broadly neutralizing antibodies that can keep up with this mutating virus. Is that it? Well,
1: yeah, the idea actually is to be ahead of the mutating virus. Uh, The idea is not so much to keep up, but to elicited an antibody that doesn't mind if the virus is mutating because it knows where to hold on where the antibody is not making any mutations. And the idea in the, in the clinical trial that we just carried out, you know, we were not eliciting broadly neutralizing antibodies, but we, we were eliciting precursors to broadly neutralizing antibodies that had some key properties that are required for one particular kind of broadly neutralizing antibody. And the challenge for us now will be to develop additional shots to be followed in to be given in succession that will uh, allow the B cells to develop further and produce antibodies that are actually broadly neutralizing antibodies.
0: So a series of vaccinations would produce the right antibodies. That's the goal.
1: Yeah, starting with the one we just tested, and then uh, a, a series of a few additional ones that are different from the one we just gave.
0: Now, you presented your team's results yesterday to the International AIDS Society Research Conference. Was this clinical trial more successful than you anticipated? Yeah. So we were testing a new vaccine
1: concept, and no one had ever tested this in humans before. We had shown uh, relatively good results in animal model systems, but we didn't really know if it would work in humans. Um, And we also thought even if it does work We would be happy with a proof of principle, not necessarily uh, such great performance that we could just build on it and keep and just use this particular vaccine antigen. You know, you can always imagine if you prove the principle, then you say, okay, now we need to make it work better so that we can really use this in the real world. But it actually performed well enough that we don't need to go back to the drawing board and improve it at the moment. We can just build on it. In the long run, we might try to improve it, but it worked pretty darn well. So yeah, we were surprised at how well it worked, both the concept and the sort of the practical performance.
0: You mentioned the similarities between the spike proteins that we've been hearing about on COVID-19 and the spike proteins in the HIV virus. I'm wondering, where is the crossover here? What other diseases might a vaccine like this be able to prevent?
1: Yeah. So this strategy, we're actually looking into using this strategy to induce broadly neutralizing antibodies against coronaviruses also. Uh, and that again would be not to not to uh, catch up to the coronavirus variants, but to be ahead of it and, and, and to elicit antibodies that really don't care which variant the coronavirus generates. It can neutralize no matter what. Uh, so we're looking into to, we're investigating whether this strategy might help elicit broadly neutralizing antibodies against coronaviruses. We and others are working on trying to make what's called a universal flu vaccine, which would be the same kind of idea Elicit broadly neutralizing antibodies against flu. You wouldn't have to take a new vaccine every year if we elicited really broad neutralizing antibodies. and there's some reason to believe that the strategy that we just tested for HIV might help in that quest. And there are other there are other viruses as well, dengue and Zika, we may may be able to use with the strategy for.
0: So what happens now? How does the research proceed to the next step?
1: Actually, people have heard of the Moderna vaccine for coronaviruses, and we've been collaborating with Moderna for quite a long time. And our major interest is that with their technology, we can do more clinical trials more quickly. So we actually are going to go back into humans and test if, our, if the same vaccine concept will work as delivered by Moderna mRNA. And we're going to test the uh, a first try at giving a second shot. So the next shot of our vaccine that's supposed to have the antibodies develop more toward uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies. And so we have another clinical trial that's planned to start later this year, actually.
0: Okay, unfair question. When do you think this series of HIV vaccinations might be available to the public? I mean, you know, we're trying
1: to go as quick as we can, but it is a very, very difficult problem. It's probably the most difficult vaccine problem ever attempted, which is why, as you said at the beginning, it's been 40 years and we still don't have a vaccine. And a lot of smart people have tried a lot of clever strategies. So will this ultimately work? You know, we can't say that it will. We're going to do our best with all of our colleagues How soon might it work? I mean, if everything goes really well and, you know, we might be able to see, I would say in the next five years that we can induce broadly neutralizing antibodies against HIV. And then when could that be deployed as a vaccine around the world? You know, if we went as fast as the COVID did, maybe, you know, just a few years later. Uh, But I would say it would be hard to imagine having a real vaccine for HIV before, let's say, 10 years from now.
0: Okay, then. William Sheaf, thank you so much. Uh, William Sheaf is a professor and immunologist at Scripps Research and Executive Director of Vaccine Design at IAVI Neutralizing Antibody Center. Thanks so much. And thanks for your work.
1: Thanks very much, Maureen.
4: Racism pervades all aspects of our lives, including the quality of medical care we receive. That's especially true for black mothers and babies. According to the most recent data from the California Department of Public Health, black infants are three times more likely to die and 60% more likely to be born prematurely than white infants. And black mothers are three times more likely to die due to pregnancy or delivery complications than white mothers. This is happening because of racism in health care. To address the disparities and create better outcomes for black families, San Diego County has launched a campaign called Black Legacy Now. Dr. Thomas Coleman is the Medical Director of Maternal, Child, and Family Health Services with the county. Uh, Dr. Coleman, welcome.
2: Thank you, Jade. It's great to be with you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
4: The name of the campaign is Black Legacy Now, and that title conveys urgency for the county to address these disparities. Tell me about that urgency.
2: Uh, It's really sort of a clarion call to action that these inequities are fundamentally unjust. And, you know, we need to, as a community, you know, we need to educate everyone, then we need to come together as a community to rectify These structural inequities and have more equal outcomes in terms of of, uh, particularly related to maternal and infant health in the Black and African American community.
4: You know, despite the same levels of education, insurance coverage and preventative care, Black women are still three times more likely than white women to die during pregnancy and babies are 60% more likely to be born premature. What's the root cause of this?
2: There's evidence that structural racism, as well as implicit bias in the clinical arena certainly uh, leads to these uh, tragic, inappropriate disparities that we all need to work to rectify.
4: So you say that, you know, systemic racism and implicit biases have caused these negative outcomes for black mothers and black babies. Can you give me some common examples of how this plays out in the healthcare system on a day-to-day basis?
2: there's ample evidence that uh, there's a differential way that pain is treated and responded to in terms of the black and white communities. So I think on a, on a daily basis, you know, from the implicit bias perspective, we know that that impacts clinical management across multiple arenas, not just the obstetrical or perinatal arena.
4: What are some common things you've heard from black women when they go to visit the doctor and they're expecting?
2: being disrespected, not being heard, um, not being valued, being dismissed, um, not taken seriously, and and pregnancy should be one of those joyous things. But whenever we go to the doctor, there's inherently, at least on baseline, a differential of power, if you will, a lot of this relates to power. And it's not that, that that is inherently set up. It's just people feel vulnerable when they go. To, to the physician in general. Pregnancy really should be a joyous occasion. And uh, you know, if you look at, uh, a, again, a person or a patient centered uh, perspective, it values the perspective of the woman and, and her family. It values the autonomy of the woman. It incorporates the woman's values and perspectives it, it involves, uh, you know, active listening, sort of a collaborative relationship.
4: The data highlights how the medical community fails so many Black mothers and families. What's being done to fix what's broken within the system? What interventions are being implemented through this program?
2: Well, that's a great question. The, the two primary interventions are uh, the implicit bias training uh, that will soon be um, implemented in terms of uh, the healthcare arena. We're also, uh, we have the fatherhood initiative that we mentioned, but we have a longstanding history uh, within the county and within uh, public health services under Dr. Wooten's leadership with a, a focus of everything that we do on health equity. So I mentioned the Black Infant Health Program, which uh, is longstanding and, and is a group-based model that you know, works with women from an empowering perspective. That's the other part of, um, you know, having a trauma-informed lens in terms of all of our programs. So we work with Black Infant Health. We also have a perinatal care network initiative within our maternal, care, maternal child and adolescent health funding, trying to get women into prenatal care earlier with a concerted focus for that, but also connecting them to ancillary services. There are multiple home visiting programs both within the county and community partners. I think the other part too is listening to the community. The, the community advisory board that we have for the perinatal equity initiative has been instrumental from the beginning as far as you know the interventions that are put in place. So it's very much community driven uh, as far as what we look at. There are other programs Uh, But, you know, within our, our maternal child and adolescent health program, but all of the focus is up really on health equity in terms of providing information and resources in a way that sort of lifts up in a positive perspective asset based for all of the people that we serve within San Diego County, but certainly within the, uh, the arena of uh, African-American mothers and infants.
4: I know the goal of the Black Legacy Now campaign is to connect families with resources and information uh, to address the problem. What's available to people and how can they reach out?
2: I think the first place is to go to the BlackLegacyNowSD.com website. There's a wealth of information, as I mentioned. It's, you know, it's a focus about why are we focused on this? What is the initiative? There's a focus on communities, because we want this to be, you know, all of the community to be galvanized in terms of this critically important endeavor. There's a focus on the, the women that I mentioned, there's the fatherhood initiative. There's actually a section with a lot of different resources that's explicitly tailored for healthcare professionals for their review and incorporation into their clinical practice. So it's really meant to be a global multidisciplinary, multifocal program that incorporates all aspects of the community. Again, sort of raising awareness of this pivotal issue, but then also us collectively moving forward to rectify these long-standing structural inequities that have led to these outcomes that are just unacceptable.
4: I've been speaking with Dr. Thomas Coleman, who is the Medical Director of Maternal, Child, and Family Health Services with the County of San Diego Health and Human Services Agency. Dr. Coleman, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Jay. My pleasure.
5: and donate what you can, alright?
2: Thanks.
0: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. As special education costs continue to spiral, battles between parents and school districts over what services students need have intensified. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has the story of one family who took their fight to court.
6: Can you tell him your name? Eli. Eli's parents say they knew right away that their child would have hearing problems. His dad, John Davenport, recalls how as a toddler, Eli held his plastic toy guitar right up to his ear to hear the noises it made.
1: He would sit when he was one year old, he would sit and he would lay his ear flush against it while was blasting music. And he would just lay with his ear like that. You know, and I tested it, I took it and I held it close to my ear and it hurts. You know, that was, it was obvious at that point that he had a problem.
6: Fortunately, Davenport and his wife, Farrah Cherie were able to put Eli in the deaf and hard of hearing program for toddlers at San Diego Unified's Lafayette Elementary School in the Claremont Mason neighborhood. But when Eli turned three, he aged out of the program, and the district has denied him entrance into the full-day program ever since. For the past two years, Eli's parents, who are both physicians, have spent upwards of $30,000 to provide Eli with a patchwork of private services. But despite the advantage of being health experts with financial resources, they say Eli is still significantly behind where he should be. The pandemic has only made things worse. Then after that, he didn't meet their,
1: you know, what the district called their criteria for hearing impairment. And so they kicked him out when he was three. Um, But he should have remained in that school. If he had remained in that school, I think his
6: speech would be far improved from where he is now. There's no
1: question it would be.
6: Eli's parents say they have no clue why the district did not provide the services. In the past two and a half years, several independent experts examined Eli and found he easily qualifies as hearing impaired. Hearing specialist Gwen Sunan is one of those experts.
7: I have three audiograms that clearly show he has a hearing loss in both ears. So if I look at his audiogram, he has a moderate rising to mild sloping down to a moderate loss in both ears.
6: The couple sued the district in November 2019 and again in October 2020 for denying Eli services and for reimbursement for the private instructors and therapists. So far, they say they've spent more than $20,000 on attorney's fees. Summer Steck is a special education attorney and a former teacher. She says disagreements like this occur only in a small percentage of cases. But when they do happen, they can be costly for both families and school districts.
4: Sometimes, you know, you do wonder how you end up paying all the attorney's fees and all of the other costs and sometimes reimbursement to families that have paid for these services themselves. And when you look at what it would have cost to just do it in the first place and see if it is in fact what the student needs to receive a FAPE, um, it probably would have saved
8: a a lot of money.
6: San Diego Unified School District spokeswoman, Maureen McGee would not comment on Eli's case, citing the pending litigation. She also did not respond to questions about the district's special education policies. Cherie says the final straw came last October after they made one last failed attempt to get services for Eli through San Diego Unified at Lafayette Elementary. The parents said they couldn't wait any longer.
4: His progression, I guess, his progress has been very, very slow. And he he is nowhere near um, age level. He he does not have age level language.
7: Um,
4: And um, I would say he's maybe at about... To two-year-old, two-year-old speech, yeah. and he's five.
6: In November, they enrolled Eli at the John Tracy Center in Los Angeles, which offers full-time in-person instruction for deaf and hard-of-hearing students. The parents rented an apartment in Los Angeles and took turns living with Eli for a week at a time. The couple says they're fortunate to be able to pay for their son's special education, but they can't get back what they lost.
4: There's no amount of money in the world, I think, that someone could have and still give everything to their child. You know, we have
6: resources, but
4: it, it wasn't enough. Joining me is
0: KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. And Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me. These parents have been through quite a lot trying to get help for their child. San Diego Unified wouldn't comment on this case, but do they have special ed criteria publicly available so parents can figure it out?
6: So uh, there's actually a a federal law for that. It's called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that is, you know, publicly available for folks to read. But the the problem in in this case was that the federal law, it's it's pretty vague. Um, It basically just says if a student's uh, disability impairs their ability to learn, you know, then they're entitled to services. And what we found in this case was that the district, uh, we, we actually acquired internal emails at the district that shows that they actually have their own sort of internal criteria for hearing loss that the parents had no idea about. So that, that's one of the questions I, I had for the district is, you know, what's sort of the legality of having these metrics when there's a federal law in place?
0: What did you learn from those emails? How San Diego Unified policy is different from federal policy?
6: In in federal law, it just says, you know, if a student's hearing is is bad enough that it affects their learning, um, then he or she qualifies. But uh, the district has on top of that created um, its own metrics, meaning like what decibels and what hertz are students able to um, process sounds? You know, I really kind of saw this behind-the-scenes exchange that, you know, the parents say that they should have been a part of that conversation.
0: On a larger scale, we've heard that special ed students have been hit especially hard by school closures because of the pandemic. Can you give us an update on that situation?
6: Most districts in the county right now are offering some form of in-person uh, instruction for students with disabilities in in small groups. But before that really uh, started happening um, late last year, these students were really struggling. you know special education, uh, more so than general education, is inherently sort of a physical sort of in-person, a process and instructors really need to be physically with these students. And without that, students have really regressed in a lot of cases. Uh, Students have fallen behind in speech acquisition, in uh, developing sort of positive behaviors, and of course, academically as well.
0: And San Diego Unified is offering, I think, some in-person instruction to kids struggling with remote learning. Is that aimed at special ed students?
6: Yeah. So uh, it's what they're calling their sort of first phase of reopening. They're prioritizing high needs students for appointment based uh, in-person learning. And yeah, definitely one of their top priorities is students with disabilities and sort of getting them back on track.
0: I want to ask you about this new push to get California schools reopened. Governor Newsom just said that schools should be able to reopen safely even if all teachers have not yet been vaccinated. How do teachers unions feel about that?
6: Uh they are they're they're not happy about that. So, yeah, Governor Newsom uh sort of fell in line with the Biden administration uh this week just saying that Uh, teacher vaccinated teachers is not a prerequisite for, for reopening schools. And, you know, unions sort of swiftly responded and said that they have serious concerns about sending teachers back to campuses, uh, without the vaccine. And, you know, while the studies show that younger children might be less susceptible to, um, getting the virus and and spreading the virus, these teachers are still at risk.
0: What is San Diego Unified's position on the issue of reopening for in-person learning?
6: The district has really set up three criteria for reopening. Um, One of them is teacher vaccinations. Uh, The second is getting the county back down to the red tier. So just lowering the spread of the virus overall in the community And then the third is a robust testing uh, program, which the district has in place where everyone who's on campus regularly needs to be tested every two weeks.
0: So that sounds like it's going to take a while. And we did see some reopenings of other school districts in San Diego, followed quickly by shutdowns because of COVID outbreaks. Are there school districts reopened now in San Diego?
6: So there's definitely no public school districts that have fully sort of gone back to normal um, Poway Unified School District this week, they started a hybrid model sort of a a, a half day in person instruction for elementary school students, but there was a lot of back and forth at Poway as well. Um, they, they started this half-day program back in uh, August, September, in the fall, and then they had to stop because of the winter surge, and now they're they're back again. And sort of the same thing happened at um, Oceanside and Escondido school districts. They started in person in the fall and then had to close down in the, in the winter, um, and those districts actually aren't back, are, are not back yet for in person again.
0: I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter, Joe Hong. Joe, thanks a lot.
6: Thank you.
4: Valentine's Day is around the corner, so how about some romance? KPBS's border podcast, Port of Entry, continues its series of cross-border love stories with couples who've been separated by deportation. They talk about how their love has kept them connected despite the wall running through their relationship. Here's host Alan Lilienthal talking with Emma Sanchez and Michael Paulson. Emma came to the U.S. without papers, got married to a U.S. citizen, Michael, and had three children with him before an immigration judge banned her from reentering the U.S. for 10 years. We pick up the story from when Emma moved to Tijuana so she could be closer to Michael, who kept living and working in San Diego.
5: Emma moved up to Tijuana from Los Cabos with her three boys into the house Michael had rented for the family. It's estimated that thousands of families use Tijuana the way Emma and Michael did, as a place that allows families to keep living their lives together even though they're separated by a border wall. Michael worked two jobs back in San Diego to help pay the extra rent. He kept his house in Vista, an hour drive north of the border. So he could be close to his jobs, Emma says the Tijuana house was quote as big as her loneliness.
9: Pues así enorme como estaba la casa, así enorme estaba mi soledad. Trataba de aguantarme, de no llorar. Me escondía a veces a llorar en el baño para que ellos no me vieran. Yo les empecé a decir es que mami está out. mami no puede ir a donde daddy hasta que mami no no esté out.
5: She's saying she would try not to cry, but when she couldn't help it. She would lock herself in the bathroom so her kids wouldn't see. Michael and Emma wanted the boys to get educated in the US. So, one by one, as the boys grew up, they moved back to the US to live with Michael and start school. Eventually, Emma was left all alone. <laughs>
9: Nunca, nunca, jamás me pasó la idea de suicidio. Yo decía, tengo que estar bien, tengo que, que estar un día con mis hijos y que me vean fuerte y me vean bien. Yo creo que esa esperanza siempre me mantuvo.
10: She would cry sometimes saying, I'm stuck in Tijuana and I'm, I don't want to make you mad and everything. And I say, I'm not mad. I married you for better or worse. This just happens to be the worst. There's daylight over the hills. Just be patient, bite the bullet, and you'll get through it.
5: Michael knew how lonely Emma was. So nearly every weekend, he'd pack the boys into his car.
10: Oh, yeah, every weekend we would go down there. We'd go down, I'd take them down on Friday, leave them. If I had to work Saturday, I'd come back work and then go down again and then bring them back. Many times being late, waiting at the long border waits, six and a half, seven hour waits. That's how long I waited sometimes. In
5: 2015, nine years after she was deported, Emma wanted to use her family's story to make a big, bold political statement. She asked Michael if they could renew their vows in a wedding ceremony at the actual border fence at a place called Friendship Park where the wall runs into the Pacific Ocean. So on July 19th, 2015, Michael in his freshly pressed dress blues and Emma in a white wedding dress, white gloves, and a veil held an outdoor wedding as surprised border patrol agents stood by.
10: It gives me great pleasure to present this couple to you, Los Recién Casados, Michael, Neil, yeah. yeah. now married, Michael and Emma. Un aplauso, por favor.
5: Photos of the wedding they posted online quickly went viral.
10: You know, how many people you know, um Marine gets married out of the country in another country and is dressed blues with a Mexican lady. She made the San Diego Union Tribune front page during the Olympics and the LA Times. She made front page on the LA Times also.
5: The couple became something of an icon for other couples stuck in similar situations.
10: You know, the, we're not giving up. My family's not giving up. And then I had a lot of people call me up and said, uh, good going. You're like a light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of people.
5: Three years after Michael and Emma's wedding at the border and 12 years after Emma was first deported, Emma's path back into the U.S. came into view. She reapplied for citizenship status and was approved. It took two years longer than they had hoped, but the day finally came.
4: Yeah! Woo! Woo!
5: Fellow deported moms walked with Emma to the San Isidro port of entry, carrying flags. And Michael and the boys crossed into Tijuana so they could walk back through the border by Emma's side. One of her sons who had joined the army wore his military uniform.
10: She was ready to go and we crossed the border and there were some people interviewing somebody and they didn't show up so they saw us and they they overheard us talking or something and they asked if they could interview us so they were taking pictures and uh, felt like we were celebrities. <laughs> it <was> like, wow. <laughs>
9: Se sintió hermoso y mira que yo cuando estaba deportada allá en Tijuana a veces yo decía yo soñaba yo decía yo voy a entrar por la puerta grande yo voy a llegar Estados Unidos un día y voy a llegar por la puerta grande y voy a llegar que hasta los gabachos se van a poner contentos de que yo esté ahí en su país lo que era que yo me daba como para como para darme ánimo, ¿no?
5: Emma is saying it felt amazing to walk through the big door, as she called it, the port of entry like a dream come true.
10: We were walking as a family across the border. We got mom back. So yeah, it was a a great feeling. I was like, yes, 12 years. I did it, I did it, I did it. Give myself a pat on the back.
5: Emma and Michael have been living together in California ever since.
10: Now I get the cuddle up with my wife at night. Kind of a weird feeling like I just got married again. <laughs>
4: And that was Emma Sanchez and Michael Paulson talking with Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal. You can hear the rest of the episode on KPBS's Port of Entry podcast online at portofentrypod.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.
8: Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today.
4: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The history of black films in America is both problematic and inspiring. It's problematic in the racial stereotypes it presented and how underrepresented black voices have been in the creative process. Yet over the past century, there have been amazing examples of Black filmmakers presenting their point of view and countering the white perspective. KPBS cinema junkie Beth Akamando plans to highlight a century of Black cinema for the month of February, and she is joining us with more. Beth, welcome. Hey, thank you. So Cinema Junkie is your blog and podcast here at KPBS. Explain
7: what you're doing for Black History Month with it. Sure. During the summer, I was highlighting a black filmmaker a day, and people responded really well. So I decided that every day in February, I would highlight a film in chronological order of release to create a kind of timeline of black film history. So I'm sharing photos and info on social media and then collecting all the films on my Cinema Junkie blog to do this for Black History Month. So, so what's the criteria for being on the list? It's five basic things. The most important being it must be directed by a black filmmaker. I didn't want to have any of the films from a white perspective or a white director. So the films must feature a black cast. They must also be a US release because I wanted to focus on black films in this country because there's a wealth of black films from Africa that I'd love to cover in a different list. They must also have some sort of significance. So it can be a first, it can be overlooked or underappreciated, tackle provocative topics, challenge the status quo, have an impact on pop culture, be pioneering or paving the way for others. Those kind of things are important. And finally, I wanted to make sure that people could see these films, so they must be streaming or on YouTube or be available on DVD or Blu-ray, because I'm really hoping that people will seek out some of these movies, and that's really my whole objective, is to get people to appreciate this long history of black cinema, to understand how we arrived at Do the Right Thing or Black Panther. Hmm. And
4: and speaking of just being able to see the films, you're starting with some silent films. Why are these important?
7: Well, I think it's important to really know the past. And directors like Oscar Michaud, who made Silence and Early Talkies, is truly a pioneer. And many of his films have been lost, but there are a few that have been saved in the Library of Congress and have been restored. And they're really important to see and understand the roots of black cinema. Michaud started the first black-owned film production company and made films with all-black cast aimed for a black audience. And these were known as race movies. So a film like Within Our Gates was made five years after Birth of a Nation and only months after the bloody Chicago race riots of 1919. And he depicts things like the lynching of an innocent family to counter the images and ideas that someone like D.W. Griffith had shown in Birth of a Nation. So he was challenging that white perspective and pointed out that it was whites who were committing some of these barbaric acts of cruelty. And to be fair, he was not popular across the board with all black audiences, but his films, the few that still exist, are really important to see, and some of them are just amazing works.
4: It's it's amazing how powerful a film can be and how it can help shape a narrative. What do you have coming up next?
7: Yeah, I want to bring up Spencer Williams. He was an actor and a director, but his pioneering work in early black film may be overshadowed by the controversy over his racially stereotyped role as Andy on the 1950s TV program The Amos and Andy Show. But hopefully Williams will be remembered for the more interesting work he did before his TV fame. In 1941, he made The Blood of Jesus, which served up a religious tale that crossed into surreal territory, complete with a devil and an angel fighting over a dying woman's soul. William's film presents a portrait of black faith and community from baptism to death in a manner that feels very honest and sincere. The film was thought lost, but a print was found in the 80s and it's since been added to the Library of Congress's National Registry of Films. So here's a sample of the gospel music that drives the story.
3: When
7: so that was from Spencer Williams' nineteen forty one film The Blood of Jesus. Mm. And
4: you'll be highlighting some films from the nineteen seventies known as Black Exploitation. These films can be problematic for some people, so why do you think it's important to include them?
7: First of all, not all black exploitation films are good. There are many that are not worth revisiting, but a lot of them were really noteworthy for creating opportunities for black filmmakers and actors.
4: The mob wanted Harlem back. They got checked. <laughs> Shaft, a big bad black like private eye. Introducing Richard Roundtree as Shaft, man, directed by Gordon Parks.
7: So someone like Gordon Parks became the first African American to direct a major studio film with Shaft. While you have someone like Melvin Van Peebles who made Sweet Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song completely outside the studio system, and he created a film that was so dynamic and experimental that even today it's kind of shocking for audiences to see how audacious his storytelling, his cinematic storytelling is. I spoke with David F. Walker, who's an author. He did the Shaft graphic novel, and he has a new one out about the Black Panther Party. And we share a love for black exploitation films, and we talked a little bit about why these films are important.
8: There's two things I, I tell people they need to consider. One is that what black exploitation did is it signaled a shift in the way blackness was presented. It was a fairly significant shift in the way it was presented in popular culture. And that shift was reflective of power fantasies and and desires, and and in a lot of ways, the unfulfilled dreams of the 60s. And in terms of film and TV, this is what grew out of that. And I think that if you look at those films, and then you look at the the decade that came before them, you can see that progression, right? So that's that's first and foremost. But I think that when you look at, say, Get Out or, or Marvel's Black Panther movie, like I'd argue that none of those films would exist today if it wasn't for black exploitation because if nothing else what the black exploitation era and the movement itself did was it opened the door and created opportunities that that door was never they could never shut that door again. I would say that if everybody doesn't have at least two pairs of glasses through which they view everything, they should at least have a pair of bifocals with different lenses. You can look at everything through a contemporary lens and that's fine, but you have to look through everything through a contextual lens of the time and the era in which it was made.
7: So I think to appreciate where we are now or why we haven't progressed more than we have, we need to look back at the past and we need to celebrate where these films made progress, even if there are sometimes problematic aspects to them as well. And black exploitation films had an undeniable cultural impact.
4: So where can we find uh, your social media post about this?
7: Sure. You can check out my Cinema Junkie page on Facebook, or you can follow me as Cinebeth on Twitter and Instagram.
4: I've been speaking with Beth Akamando, KPBS arts and culture reporter. Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all the films will be collected on beth's cinema junkie blog at kpbs.org